0: Are now back on september 24th 2021 at about two thirty in the afternoon east coast time and we are here for a special edition of tales from the heart a podcast from the hcma and i am lisa salberg ceo and founder and i am joined today by dr fatty malik from cytokinetics where he is the executive uh, here we go with that uh, title again, Executive Vice President of Research and Development, and he's going to be sharing with us the uh, clinical findings from uh, the Redwood HCM study. Welcome, Fatty.
1: Thank you, Lisa. It's great to be here.
0: So why don't you tell them a little bit about what Redwood HCM was studying, and then we can dive into the data.
1: Sure. You know, Redwood HCM was a trial of a um, potential medicine that we've developed called Afficampton. And it's a trial that was intended to help us understand what doses were effective and safe that could then be applied in the next trial, which would be a phase three trial. So Redwood HCM was a phase two trial. We call it a dose finding trial. Uh, And then phase three would be a trial often called a pivotal trial, that where the data there might support an eventual drug approval.
0: So can you walk through for the patients who are listening, what a phase one, two, three, and four trial are?
1: Yeah, I can do that. You know, when um, we develop uh, a new potential medicine in the laboratories, you know, we do a lot of work. I mean, it takes years sometimes before we think we've found the right um, combination of, of features in a molecule that we want to put in the clinic. Um, we go through a whole bunch of work before it goes into the clinic uh, called um, the sort of uh, preclinical p- package, if you will. Um, but phase one is, is usually your entry into humans. And so you do a very careful study um, in healthy volunteers most of the time, depending on the disease. And you, there you begin to understand, you know, how your molecule is absorbed. Uh, does it get into the bloodstream? And then hopefully you also have some evidence that it's doing what you expect it to do. Um, that, and we've completed a phase one study with Campton about two years ago before we embarked on Redwood. Um, with, with phase two, you're now moving into the patient population. And, uh, you know, the main objective of phase two is to understand what doses are the right doses to study further. So you, you want some evidence that the drug's doing what it should do in the patients. I think you'll see that in Redwood HCM, how we, how we showed that. You want to understand what doses are best to study. And you kind of want to understand that balance between effectiveness and, you know, any safety issues that may emerge with the molecule as well. There's not a, there's not a chemical or, or a substance on earth that doesn't have uh, some sort of a safety issue at some dose. Even even water isn't harmless as we all know at the, at the wrong doses. So, um, and with that, you then in phase three is where you do the most rigorous and usually the largest trial that is intended to provide the basis for assessing a molecule's effectiveness in a, in a rigorous way, you know, where it was statistics to back up uh, what the treatment effect might be, and also its safety, you know, what are the, what are the potential issues, um, and that way when you go for drug approval, um, you know, and eventually if you are approved and there's a label, it can be informative as to, you know, here are the potential benefits and the magnitude of those benefits and the strength of the data supporting them, and on the other hand, you know, here are any potential safety issues that were uncovered and people and physicians can make an informed decision about the risks and benefits of any medicine that they take.
0: Okay, so what is AFI-Campton?
1: Well AFI-Campton, should I pull up some slides and we can sure, start from care. there?
0: Absolutely. Right.
1: Okay, well, I'm going to share some slides that were. um used to present the the data with AFI-Campton at a meeting recently, a scientific meeting at the Heart Failure Society of America that occurred September 10th and 13th, and um, it was the first in-person meeting I've been to in almost two years. Uh, About a thousand people were there, and uh, it was a really wonderful event. so to get to your question, you know, afecampton is something that we call uh, a cardiac myosin inhibitor. Myosin, as uh, many of your listeners may know, is the fundamental protein in the heart that generates force. It transforms energy in the form of ATP into mechanical work that causes the heart to contract and relax. And it's also you know, the protein in which many mutations <clears throat> can lead to hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. Um, and in general, those mutations uh, lead to overactivation of myosin or in some way excessive contractility of the heart. And like any muscle that contracts too much, it begins to thicken. Um, it can develop fibrosis and other changes um, uh, and become uh, uh, a heart that's not working properly. So afecamptin is a cardiac myosin inhibitor, meaning that it is intended to sort of tune, reduce the contractility of muscle and uh, hopefully restore balance to uh, the muscle of the heart so that it's contracting in a more normal range. Uh, You think of myosin as hands and they pull on a rope that causes muscle to contract. And at cytokinetics, we, we sort of pioneered The discovery and development of drugs that that, uh, modulate muscle contractility. And in one case, we developed a drug for people that have heart failure to to create to add more hands to pulling on the rope. So a myosin activator. And in this hand, we've created a medicine, a a myosin inhibitor that takes hands off the rope and fewer hands pulling on the rope, thus reducing the contractility of the heart. now, after it, so that's the kind of the mechanism and the um, therapeutic basis for pursuing it. That that in hypertrophic cardiomyopathy you have excessive contractility, and here's a medicine that can maybe reduce it to a more normal range. But there's a lot that goes into under um, you know optimizing a medicine. You want it to you know have the right sort of um, half life in the body, meaning how how long does it Um, once you take it, you know, how long does it hang around? You want it, if it hangs around too long, it makes it harder to adjust the dose. You have to wait a long time before you get to the effectiveness of whatever dose you're on before you decide to change the dose. And if you want to stop the medicine, it can also take a long time for it to wear off. So we worked very carefully on optimizing the uh, half-life of the drug uh, the op- with the goal of being able to make those changes every couple of weeks and all- also to be able to see the effects reverse if, if we got too much of the medicine on board. Um, and then the last you know, piece that was very important is also trying to uh, ensure that there was a predictability to how um, the effects changed when you increased dose. So a, you know if you imagine that you starting a medicine is like you know walking down a hill. And if you walk down a hill, you want to walk down a hill that's not too steep. Otherwise, it's a lot harder, um, and you might slip down the hill and you know end up at the bottom, not in in, in not great physical form. So uh, we, that's called a PKPD relationship, and we want to make it shallow for a drug like this that needs to be titrated. So that's Affecampton and and you know fundamentally we. Um, As I told you earlier, we conducted phase one in healthy volunteers. Uh, We began under you know we understood what the starting doses might be, and that the drug seemed to have the activity we're interested in in terms of reducing cardiac function. And so we designed this study called Redwood HCM. Uh, We're a company located in California, and so we have an affinity to our magnificent redwoods here. And um, um, and it, it was intended to enroll patients with hypertrophic cardiomyopathy that, that had obstructive hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. So, you know, pressure gradient um, that would lead to symptoms, uh, New York Heart Association, class 2-3, so kind of mild to moderate, in some cases a bit more severe, and also the presence of a resting gradient, uh, as well as a provoked gradient. We used Balsalva. Um, and patients were allowed to be on, on their background medicines, included beta blockers or calcium channel blockers. And uh, you know the objective was to define, again, what dose range would be best to use, and did the drug reduce the gradient uh, and potentially improve patient symptoms through improvement in NYHA class. So uh, a study like this um, is often designed using a placebo group. So you have something to measure against and it's conducted in a blinded way so that uh, patients don't necessarily know whether they're on active or placebo. Uh, that can be annoying because you often you want to be on the active drug and can understand that. So after this trial was over, uh, we are now putting up a, an open label extension where patients that participated in this trial can continue uh, continue on and, and receive the medicine they received if they want it, it uh, um, in each of each group of patients that were randomized um, they received one of they received uh, potentially each of three doses so the first group of patients received 5 10 and 15 milligrams uh, they started on day one at five milligrams and two weeks later they had an echocardiogram if their gradient was not um, reduced below the threshold that we were interested in and as long as the ejection fraction was above 50% then they would move to the next higher dose in this case 10 milligrams. Two weeks later they'd have another echocardiogram and again potentially move to 15 milligrams. When they met The targets, and we'll talk about what those were in a minute, um, they would stop escalating dose. And um, they go on to finish 10 weeks of dosing. There was a two week uh, washout period after which we got another echocardiogram at week 12, and they finished the study two weeks later. Um, We had two groups of patients 21 patients in the first group, 20 in the second group. We studied the doses there at the bottom, so from five to 30 milligrams.
0: So fatty you just um, just for numbers purposes so you have 21 in one in cohort 1 and 20 in cohort 2 how many placebo patients were there uh,
1: uh, th- there were 13 placebo patients in total and 28 placebo uh, patients on afficampton by the end of the study
0: Great thank you
1: And and those numbers are right there so thank you. the um, um, and these are what are called base, the baseline characteristics. Um, you know, essentially they are uh, they show that the patients we enrolled were predominantly class two, but we had a number of class three patients. Uh, the gradients were fairly high. So Valsalva gradients around 90, resting gradients around 60 to 70, um, high ejection fractions, uh, you know, Above 50, well above fifty uh, percent, sort of there in, in the mid seventies. Um, so this is a group of patients who uh, were also on good background therapy, but obviously still uh, had significant objective findings of obstructive HCM. So the the. Um, the key endpoint for us in this trial was whether we could reduce the gradient. And the gradient is in, in obstructive HCM, as many of you know, is uh, what can, can be the issue in terms of exercise intolerance and symptoms that can make the disease much harder to manage. And so um, the placebo group here, and shown in gray, didn't really have much of an effect on their gradient over the treatment period. Um, The patients in cohort one, their gradients went down as early as two weeks. Um, You see that the the treatment effect there on the resting gradient was maintained uh, at 10 weeks. When we stopped the drug, the gradients went back to where they started within two weeks. And um, the orange dashed line there is kind of a diagnostic threshold for obstruction. So resting gradient above 30 is often used to define obstructive hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. So you can see the blue dots are below the, the orange line. And then the higher group, uh, the cohort two patients, uh, similarly had a somewhat more rapid drop as they started on a higher dose. They got to a, a, a gradient there of about uh, 13 millimeters of mercury, and then their their um, gradients went back up at, during the washout, all statistically significant. The Valsalva can gradient, me, you know, is can a is, me back yeah. up
0: for one second. Um, can you just explain to the patient viewers what those numbers of statistically significant mean?
1: Sure. So um, when we do uh, any, any um, study like this, we kind of want to understand whether the difference between what we're seeing and what is happening in the placebo group um, is is something that is different than what you might expect by chance. So statistically significant means that the chances are pretty slim that this is a chance happening. Um, If you have a p-value there, you see on the right, a p-value of 0.05, that means that there's a less than or 5% chance that the finding here would occur by chance. You know, it's sort of like picking cards out of out of a deck. You know, how how how? What are the chances of pulling you know ten spades out in a row? Well, there is some chance of that, but it's pretty slim because you know you have to, to you know if you shuffle the deck properly, it's going to be pretty rare that you get that. Um, and the the smaller the p value, the, the smaller and smaller the chance. 001 zero zero one is less than one in a thousand. Zero, zero, zero one is less than one in ten thousand. So these um, differences here are what we call highly statistically significant, and, and it just means that they're extremely unlikely to be due to a chance finding. Thank you. The other um, um, gradient we measured was when patients do the valsalva, so they they um, um, bear down. It, it's an easy way of assessing an increase in gradient. Uh, you know, versus having to do an exercise induced gradient. Um, faster and simpler into sites to do as well And uh, you can see the rest of the, the valsalva gradients start off much higher they're up in the 80s um, Cohort one, the lower dose group we saw a reduction in the valsalva gradient now above the uh, below the orange dotted line where the thresholds 50 and then the higher dose group we saw a larger effect um, as you would expect at the higher doses and. Um, uh, Again, both uh, the gradients were resolved after washout of 12 weeks, and and again, um, highly statistically significant. So, a simple way of asking, you know, how many patients got to the thresholds that we were interested in, meaning we wanted to drop the resting gradient below 30, the Valsalva gradient above 50, Um, we call that a, a, a complete responder, Uh, You see on the left-hand column, only one patient, the placebo group, um, achieved that out of 13. In the middle column, cohort one, we had 11 out of 14 patients achieve that, 79%. And on the right, we had 13 out of 14 patients achieve that definition um, uh, of resolving their gradients out of of 14. So, um, you know, the, uh, not just where the average is good, but most patients achieve the treatment goal that we had. Now, we, I told you earlier that africamptin is a cardiac myosin inhibitor. It reduces the contractility of the heart. It will cause ejection fraction to go down. You know, ejection fractions um, are often high in hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. We think of normals being 55 and above. We uh, we set a safety threshold of, of 50%. If, it, if it, the ejection fraction dropped below 50%, we would reduce the dose in, in any particular patient. These just show the average data, and you can see that there were reductions in ejection fraction as, as expected. But importantly, at 12 weeks after we stopped the drug, none of those changes were statistically significant anymore compared to where the patients started. So that in, indicated that they were reversible and reversible within a couple of weeks. Um, and that just helps in titrating dose. As you want to increase dose, um, if you get to a dose that is a little too high, then you want to be able to back off on the dose and, and know with some confidence that you're going to get back to where you were. Now, this um, this graph shows what happened to a biomarker that we call NT-proBNP. And, and again, many of you may be familiar with this, it's a, um, a protein that's secreted by the heart when it's under stress. It's sort of the heart signaling to the rest of the body that, you know, the pressures inside of me are high and, and the body needs to do some stuff to try and adjust that. Um, that NT-ProBNP is, is often elevated in hypertrophic cardiomyopathy as it was in, in these patients. And again, you see really no drop in NT-ProBNP on placebo but you see uh, significant drops in the afficampton groups and, and substantial. So these, these in the second group, you know, they they pretty much got uh, pretty close to what we'd call the normal range for for probnp and p. And that just is probably an indirect marker that the pressures inside the heart again are dropping. Now those are all sort of performance characteristics of the heart, pressures, biomarkers and things. This is the one thing we did, try and ask the patients how they felt. Um, NYHA class is a, it's a physician and patient kind of combined assessment in terms of um, how do you feel when you do, you know go about your daily life. If you, you have any limitations, that would be a class one if you didn't have any limitations. If you know I can't get out of my chair and walk across the room without getting short of breath, you know that would be a class four, and and two and three in between. Um, most of our patients were two and three, and uh, or all of them were two and three. And what you can see here is uh, improving by one class. Um, you had thirty percent of the placebo patients improved by one class, forty-three percent in cohort one, and sixty-four percent in cohort two. So. As dose increased, it looked like you had more class improvement. Um, there is a placebo effect. It's not uncommon when, you know, anybody gets a drug, they think it'll make them feel better that, that they feel better, even if it's not the active drug. Um, and so that, that's something that's expected in a study like this, but a fairly compelling trend. Um, now, just to wrap up on safety, safety is you know very important in these studies as well. You want to you don't want to pick doses that are too high. Um, we had what we call two serious adverse events. Neither of them was related to Aficamptin. Uh, one happened in a patient on placebo. It was a stress cardiomyopathy, um, meaning that they had a, an acute illness that dropped their cardiac function. Um, the other was a patient whose back pain. Which they had before just became worse. Uh, There were no um, other serious adverse events, and there were no imbalance in adverse events between placebo and and the plate, placebo and the active treated patients.
0: Can we just pause for one second there? Um, I know I've asked this question when the data was presented in another form about the back pain. Um, That was, as I understand it, not felt to be related to the drug at all, but because this individual was experiencing an exacerbation of his, his pain, that that was going to need to be managed and therefore he was not suitable to stay on the drug at that time?
1: No, no, he continued oh. taking the drug. He did not stop, but he ended up in the emergency room. Okay. And you know, often people with sometimes severe back pain need muscle relaxants or other things that they can't, you know, that they don't have at home. Um, and so, because he was in the emergency room, that qualifies as a serious adverse event. Um, but again, it was a patient who had had episodes of this before, and and I guess not surprisingly, happened to have one during our study.
0: Understood, thank you for the clarification.
1: No no worries. Um, and I think here, you know, the, the second bullet answers your question there. There were no treatment interruptions or discontinuations. Everybody that started the study finished it and finished it on drug um, per protocol. There were um, no patients that had to stop it because their ejection fraction fell below 40%, which was kind of our stopping criteria. Um, You see there, the incidence of adverse events was similar in 85, 88%. Everybody has something, they complain of generally, so it's pretty common to have an adverse event in a trial. A headache is an adverse event, for instance. And, uh, and then importantly, we had two patients whose LV ejection fractions fell below 50%. Um, in one patient, it was someone whose ejection fraction wasn't far from there, and uh, they, they were escalating dose, and and their dose was reduced, and their ejection fraction returned above 50% predictably. The second patient was just below that threshold on the last day of the, of the active treatment arm, uh, and after stopping the drug, as Per schedule, they their ejection fraction returned back to baseline. Um, so I think we had uh, I think predictability and 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 really um, uh, no significant consequence of that. So I think uh, these were uh, Dr. Marin's conclusions, and there were a lot of them. I won't read them all for you here today, but the green, important points are in green you know, as, as a, uh, a novel, uh, and we call it a second generation selective cardiac myosin inhibitor because it is uh, um, second in class. Um, we have completed this phase two clinical trial. Um, almost all the patients had their obstruction uh, uh, LV gradients eliminated. Uh, we saw reductions in biomarkers. We saw improvements in heart failure symptoms. Um, titration was was rapid and predictable. Patients got to where they needed to be within two to four weeks. Um, the treatment effect went away within a couple of weeks. Uh, adverse event profile was quite favorable, and and so this is a you know helped inform our design of a phase three trial that we're in the process of getting started, and hope to. Uh, begin before the end of the year. And we'll take in, I told you this is a dose finding trial. I didn't tell you what doses we decided to use, but we, uh, we will take forward five, 10, 15 and 20 milligrams. We only had one patient who finished the study on 30 milligrams. And so there was, you know, there's probably not many patients that will need a dose that high. So we decided not to carry that forward into phase three.
0: Was there any particular um, feature of the patient population in terms of dosing? Was it gender? Was it size? Was it age?
1: No. I would say in general, the patients who had higher baseline gradients needed higher doses. Um, and, and so, you know, that makes sense. They, they need a bit more to get to where they're going. Um, but I don't think there are any other criteria right now in this small you know, still only about 40 patients that stick out.
0: Okay. So we have a couple of questions for you. Um, And anybody who's listening live on September 24th, it is now 3 p.m. I only remind people of that because they'll watch in the middle of the night and they'll start asking us questions and we're not here anymore. We're just recordings at that point. So if you're live with us, you can ask questions um, is there any impact on arrhythmias? Is there any positive, um, response to Mav- or to Afikampton, um, with arrhythmias or has it been studied yet?
1: So we did not have any episodes of, um, atrial fibrillation, which is the most common arrhythmia, um, in, in HCM on afficamptin. There actually was one on the placebo group, but the, um, You know, we have some data we haven't fully analyzed yet to look to see whether there's some subclinical difference in uh, short runs of atrial arrhythmias or or ventricular ectopy, uh, you know, sort of extra heartbeats. Um, I think the experience in the study would be pretty small to conclude one way or the other whether there's a reduction. Um, Theoretically, if you reduce the the pressures in the ventricle, the, the Kind of the working part of the heart, the atrium, which is what is pumping blood into the ventricle and is not very thick and thick walled, it's kind of a thin walled um, structure and it's where a- a- atrial arrhythmias originate, you know, won't itself be under such pressure. And, and as the atrium is not stressed out so much, that may, in- you know, reduce the risks of atrial arrhythmias. But I think that's still something to be studied down the line.
0: It's interesting you bring that up earlier today, we were discussing septal reduction therapy with Dr. Harry Lever. And we were talking about one of the reasons that you may want to get rid of obstruction is to limit the atrial stretch and thereby release the pressures that are in the atria. Um, So you're seeing that same mechanism of the reduction in gradient and thereby the lessening of the pressure in the atria with the agent as well, rather than having to do a an invasive procedure, so that would be one of the major benefits. So I knew this question was going to come. Um, now we have a new class of drugs. We have the the Camptons. So we have mavacamten and Afficampton. What's the difference?
1: Well, um, I, I you know I hate to, these drugs were not studied. Um, side by side, so it's always hard to speak about differences. I think the, um, if you look uh, at, at how they, Amavacampton was studied in its trials, um, in general, you know, they they spent a longer time titrating the drug to dose, and we have a shorter time um, to do that, and we have, I think, a, um, a faster offset as well, which um, both of them may eventually enable us to optimize dose in each patient more readily. And, and we hope eventually to show that that leads to um, substantial efficacy. But I think, uh, you know, the data uh, at Mavic Hampton has um, really been a great uh, advance in the field. We, we had a part in, in discovering that ourselves. And um, as with any. New drug class, you know, you iterate and you iterate and you look for improvements that may be beneficial to patients down the line and you have to, you know, show that, um, uh, you know, what, what are the data eventually show and so we'll see when phase three, how the properties of Avicampton may differentiate themselves from Avicampton more clearly.
0: This is a very common question that I've been getting just the past couple of weeks that Affy campton has a name now. It's not a CK and a number. Um, So I I think people are going to start doing this comparator. We know MAVA is on its way to hopefully release the first quarter of 2022, and people are learning a lot about it. So they're obviously gonna be asking about the differences. So as we learn them, we're going to educate you because we're all learning together here. That's the great thing about a trial and partnerships. Okay, is this a once a day drug or is it a twice, three, how many times?
1: Yeah, so is a once a day drug. Um, uh, we gave it at, you know, basically in the morning and uh, it can be taken with or without food. Um, doesn't have any, any significant drug interactions that we know of, and so you don't have to worry about dosing it with other things. Um, we are currently also conducting a trial, uh, or rather another group of patients in Redwood, the cohort three, looking at aficamptin um, in patients treated with diisopiramide. Uh, and so these, those patients have generally been excluded from trials of, of cardiac myosin inhibitors, Um, We're now enrolling patients and um, we've gotten pretty far in enrollment in uh, completing enrollment in that group, but all the patients in that next cohort are on disopyramide, and we'll understand whether that combination helps those patients um, and whether, you know, maybe eventually it might lead to them being able to discontinue the disopyramide if they're having side effects from it.
0: So you're giving them both Diso and Afikampton? Or are you splitting them up into a diso and an afi? Um...
1: No, no. The uh, in this case the trial it's an open it's an open label part, so everyone's getting afi campton, <laughs> and in order to be enrolled in the third group, they all have to have been on disopyramide. So their their background therapy includes disopyramide in all cases, and then they they start and they still have to have a residual gradient and so forth, and and they are then um, started on Affecampton, and we're measuring basically the same things that we just went through.
0: So you bring up a really good point there, and I want to be clear to patients that this is not a replacement for the medications that they're already taking, such as beta blockers and or calcium channel blockers. This is an add-on therapy. So of all the people that were in this trial that were in either cohort one or two, what other medications were they on
1: you know, the majority uh, were taking beta blockers. Um, there were some patients on calcium channel blockers, um, not as many. And there were one or two patients taking both. Um, there was nobody on disoperamide in the first two groups. That was an exclusion. So we're studying it separately. Um, you know, and then, of course, there are other medications that they may take for other things that they, that they may have. But those are the two HCM related drugs.
0: Fantastic. Next question. Tang is always good with good questions. Did you look for genetic mutations and was there a difference between the sarcomeric mutation patients and the unknown mutations?
1: Uh, for that question, uh, we did collect uh, genetic data, but I don't have the answer for you yet, so stay tuned. It's still, that's, that data is still being uh, sequenced and analyzed and, and so forth. Um, okay.
0: Okay. We would like the answer to that one. So when you get it, you can come back and tell us again. So we have a a, a question. Um, uh, I think it's more of a, well, I'll just read it. I understand from the slide, it makes the heart work more efficiently. Have people said that they feel better when they're in the study? Can they be more active?
1: Well, so um, the NYJ class is a way of gauging Patients' ability to be active. Um, because it said, you know, it basically asked, are you symptomatic with regular walking, climbing stairs, things like that? Um, and so the NYHA class improved uh, as uh, um, saw a trend of improvement as uh, you increased everyone from cohort one to cohort two. That would say patients could do more. That, that was a measurement that we made. It's not a very uh, rigorous one, and we'll do more rigorous measurements in our phase three. Um, but there are also patient anecdotes, you know, again, now that the tri- the, the groups are done, um, and they've even patients have gone now onto the open label study uh, of, of being able to do more and feel better. Um, in one case, I think Dr. Mosri described a patient who said, I never really knew. Um, what it was like to feel this way because they hadn't they couldn't remember a time when they felt that way. Um, and so you know I think that'll vary by patient to patient depending on the burden of their symptoms and and maybe the treatment effect that they have. But we hope it can be meaningful.
0: Anybody who has listened to any previous podcast or comments that I've made or spoken to me on the phone, we often talk about, you don't really know how badly you feel when you're obstructed with HCM because you got used to living like this and it didn't happen in a day. It was a slow process to get you there, but when it disappears, wow, you're you're very happy that it has disappeared. Um, so Ed has joined us a bit late, but he wants to know, um, is the goal to control the symptoms or heal the underlying problem?
1: That's a good question. So. Um, what we can measure in the short term, meaning you know, if we treat people for f- three, four, six months, we can measure improvements in symptoms and exercise performance, and you know maybe we'll start to see some changes in the structure of the heart. the 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 drugs un- the drugs seem to address the underlying uh, cause of the disease, which is a hypercontractile muscle. You know, the the mutations lead to excessive contractility, and uh, the mechanism is to turn that down. What we don't know yet, and it'll probably take much longer follow-up and trials, is, you know, does that cause the heart structure to regress back to a more normal, you know, shape and form? Um, And I think that's uh, the, one of the goals of the open label extension is patients' Who finished Redwood can en- enroll into a trial that will um, have them be on in long term. Um, you know, we'll be conducting echocardiograms to look to see if wall thickness begins to regress. Uh, some patients will be eligible to go undergo um, MRI imaging as well, and we can look at some maybe regression of fibrosis and other things. So, I, I guess I can only say stay tuned. But that's the, that is the hypothesis under which, you know, we embarked on these efforts almost 10 years ago now.
0: I, I like the concept. Um, I'll, I'll ask a couple of questions, then I'll give a couple of points myself. Um, is there going to be a time limit or how long a patient might be able to stay on a myosin inhibitor? Is it something for life? Is it something they can do for 10 years and then stop or a year?
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I, the, um, that's also often a, um, a challenging question in medicine, no matter what the drug is. You know, you treat somebody's blood pressure and it gets back to normal and you say, well, maybe I can stop those blood pressure medicines. Some patients you can, they, they um, you know, they've done other things in their lives that reduce it, their they're, they're hypertension, and you're able, most of them you can't. Um, you know, in the case of hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, my guess is that, that this is a drug you'd have to take for life because the underlying reason for the disease doesn't go away. Um, you know, you, you, and so what we're trying to do is compensate for it, but if you take, and you may improve, if you take the drug away, it may take some time, but you're, you know, I would think you're likely to, to start heading back back in the direction where you were. Um, And certainly for, as you saw in the short term, you know, when, when we stopped the drug and the patients in Redwood within two weeks, they were back to where they were. So um, certainly we know that that 10 weeks of therapy isn't long enough to affect any long lasting change. And that's not surprising.
0: No, not surprising at all. So the big question is what about the non
1: obstructives
0: Will, will there be a role for a myosin inhibitor in a non-obstructed population?
1: Yeah, we'd like to think so. Again, you know, the underlying cause of the disease is similar. It's the geometry is really what's different. Um, and, and likely the, the, you know, duration of treatment in order to see a benefit is going to be different as well. You know, with the obstruction, if you saw that within a couple of weeks, we could eliminate the uh, the gradients and that is a big reason for patients exercise intolerance with obstructive ACM. The non-obstructives, it's due more to the thickening of the heart and and the, and and the uh, stiffness of the heart. And so in order to impact that, you know, I think we need longer treatment durations where we start to see potentially some of that regression and and then look to see whether there's a benefit. So it, that that's a Something we'd like to study and are planning to do that, um, but it, it will be something that likely will take longer to work out because of the um, the time involved in, in getting to where you want to be.
0: That is a challenging study design. I've been thinking about it for a really long time. Um, and I hypoth- hypothetically, I think there's going to be some benefit there just by mechanism and everything we're learning, but going to be a long time till we figure that one out so um i I have to go back in time to go forward again what is it about 10 years ago american heart association conference or maybe it was acc i go by this booth and it's got this it was during setup so i was there while the artists were actually creating the first time that they brought this model of the sarcomere and it was moving and you could see the myosin heads and you could see the actin and you could see all the mechanism. And I stopped in my tracks. I'm like, I don't know who these people are, but I like them because they're talking my language. And I got my camera out and you weren't supposed to use your camera you know, while it's set up time, there's rules at AHA. And I'm like, can I take a picture? And I, was, I have somewhere in an old cell phone camera and some Google drive somewhere probably, there are pictures of the original one but I got so excited that somebody's thinking of the sarcomere and that was about a decade ago. And, you know, I would walk by and I first saw HCM on your, on your little sheet of all the upcoming pipeline of information. I'm like, now we need to talk. So we, we met those few years ago and it started a nice relationship with the HCMA and we're happy to have you as partners. You've been um, really great to work with. Um, I think we have a, a really great future for myosin inhibitors and so many new partners coming to the table. It really is a good time to have HCM if there was one. Um, mm-hmm. We'd rather not have the problem, but it's really nice to see the cruise ships start to show up to our you know, island out in the middle of nowhere. Um, so the question now is, what next? What's coming up next? What trial?
1: Well, so um, for for Affic Campton, the next trial will be a phase three trial. We're going to describe um, that in a couple of weeks at an event that we're holding in terms of how that will be done. But, you know, in general terms, we're going to be um, um, looking for an improvement, a measurable improvement in exercise performance in patients as a way of, of quantitating, you know, what is the magnitude of the treatment effect. Um, as well as to ask them about their symptoms and and other things, and so that'll be a trial of a few hundred patients. Um, it'll be conducted in you know countries around the world at, at various centers, uh, you know, ex- with expertise in the area, um, and and we're very excited to uh, you know have already started to engage our. Um, partners and investigative sites to get things moving. So it's it's a long journey, you know, as you said, 10 years ago, you saw our sarcomere model that's still in our lobby here, if you ever wanna come by and, re- and visit it again. Um, um, it was 10 years before that, you know, where, when the research actually started to begin to understand how can we develop modulators of the sarcomere here at cytokinetics. And, um, you know, back then I had dark, brown hair and I've uh, gone gray in the meantime, but we've had uh, tremendous uh, satisfaction of having, you know, advanced the field. And I mean, we hope to deliver these medicines to the patients. And it's, you know, most gratifying thing is if uh, is hearing the, the kind of the stories of how people's lives have changed.
0: Well, if we look at history, HCMA is 25 years old, cytokinetics is 23 years old. We we started at similar timelines and you know, then our paths crossed. And here we are today having a very exciting conversation about what's next. And there's a lot of great things next. Um, I know that once the clinical trial, the next clinical trial is available, um, the HCMA will be happy to help communicate where people can participate in that. Um, we do some, you know, I don't know exactly how we're going to be involved with that, but we're we'll, we going discuss that later. Um, but we are happy to make sure that people can find a location where they might be able to participate. Um, clinical trials, people are the only way we're going to get new therapies to market. We need some brave souls to say, okay, I'm willing to try. The science looks okay to me. And with the input from your own clinicians and your family and your conversations with yourself. Um, I have participated in many clinical trials in my life. Um, Some of them were things that came to market and some of them were things that came to be standard of care. And some of them were things that eh, didn't do anything. So we moved on, Um, but we all have to kind of be in it to win it. So I encourage you all to look at clinical trials very carefully. Um, So we've got that. I think we are through with the questions that have been posed to us live. Um, I'm very excited about the future, so I can't wait to see what's next. Um, uh, any final thoughts, Fatty?
1: Well, I, th- I think um, I'll just close maybe by thanking you for having me uh, having me here and being able to talk with you and and, and the constituents out in the in the community, uh, even indirectly. Um, and so it was wonderful to get some great questions as obviously. Uh, people are following this very closely. Um, we take you know, patient engagement really seriously at Cytokinetics, and we look forward to working with the patient community and, and going forward and, and hopefully deliver a new medicine to you in the not too distant future.
0: We hope so too. I will take just a few seconds um, before I close out here today to just remind everybody that Summit uh, 7, HCM Summit 7, is coming up in October and you can still register at hcmsummit.org the hcma is a proud partner in the summit and there is a very reasonably priced patient um, registration fee you will get access to two and a half days of content And you will have six months to view it all. So you don't have to sit there all weekend and watch it. Um, But if you want to join us live on Saturday night of the summit, which is October 16th, HCMA will be programming three hours of content. So uh, we have a whole night for you to spend with us and learn about programs and research initiatives and hear some patient stories and get inspired to, you know, get involved and hopefully uh, live your best life with HCM, not in fear of it. So please join us for the summit. Additionally, um, we are just about to launch our legislative initiative, which we find um, is really gonna be critical as new therapies come to market and there's more things we can do to help people. It's gonna be critically important to find the undiagnosed. And we have state level legislation that we're looking to uh, champion that will help identify family and children in the well-child examination process so that they can get to the right screening, whether it's HCM, DCM, ARVC, channelopathies. We know genetic heart disease affects lots of people. So you can sign up and join us to be trained as a legislative advocate on October 6th and 7th We will also have a date in november but try to come to the october one Um, we'll be kicking off some really cool new tools that will help you click and send to all of your state representatives the information that we need and sharing your individual stories as well as our draft legislation Um, additionally this is the first time i'm showing it in public hcma oh it might be backwards i'm not sure if if facebook shows it backwards or not Uh, we have a new patient journal as a membership benefit And I'm going to show you just a little bit here quick, Fatty. You're getting the sneak peek, too. Inside the booklet, there's a nice little folder for you to keep all of your medical records, business cards, et cetera. Get a little letter from me. And you have areas in here where you can explain anatomy to your friends and family and and to yourself, maybe. Um, There's a place for your doctor to actually help you understand your anatomy there. We have some contact pages so you can put all the phone numbers for all of your medical providers in there. A checklist of all of your tests, when they were done, where they were done, what the results were, note pages, MRI and echo data, so you can pull out some of the key features so you can track things over time and have good conversations with your healthcare provider on those issues. You can log your symptoms, your device information, so you know if there's a recall, you don't have to go looking for your card somewhere, you can put your model number and everything right in there so you can rest easy quicker um some lists for surgical procedures that you might need and then there are a couple of pages in the back where we're going to ask you to do a little bit of work and there's a little icon on here that'll teach you how to do it and that is sharing a pedigree information you take a picture of these pages and send it to your family members so they know who needs to be screened and how and then on the back there's another little pocket for you to put all of your information in And you can keep your HCM journal with you to your doctor's appointment. And that is a new membership benefit. And you guys are the first people to see it live. Um, They'll start going out in about a week. So uh, if you uh, have your membership to renew, now would be the time to do it. Our membership drive will be starting in a couple of days. So we're encouraging you to renew your membership. um, And if you're in the middle of a membership and you want to book, there'll be an opportunity for you to do that too. It'll be available online. So there, Fatty, got a little uh, HCMA education there. Good so
1: seat.
0: thank you all for listening today. Fatty, thank you for your time and thank the entire team at Cytokinetics on our behalf. We really appreciate the, the work, the integrity and you know the tireless work of trying to make our lives a little bit better.
1: Wonderful to be here. Have a good thank weekend you. all.
0: Thank you for listening to Tales from the Heart. For more information on HCM, we encourage you to visit our website at 4HCM.org. Join us online for the conversation on our Facebook page or in our private group. Facebook page can be found at Hypertrophic Cardiomyopathy Association. And our Instagram handle is at 4HCM Warriors. That's the number 4HCM Warriors. Follow us on Twitter at 4HCM.org. For those members of the LinkedIn community, you may want to follow the conversation on the Hypertrophic Cardiomyopathy Association group. Join us today. To contact the Hypertrophic Cardiomyopathy Association, you can call 973 983 7429. You can email us at support at 4hcm.org or visit us online at our website 4hcm.org and send us an email from there. The Hypotrophic Cardiomyopathy Association is located in New Jersey and operates on East Coast time. We would like to thank our sponsors, Myocardia, Invite, Boston Scientific, and Cytokinetics for their support of this program. The HCMA is partnering with Myocardia, 23andMe, and others to help learn more about hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. Learn more about these initiatives at 4HCM.org. Invitae, a genetic testing company and a sponsor of Tales from the Heart, is proud to provide free genetic testing to families with hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. Please learn more at 4HCM.org. Hey, we know life with HCM can be challenging, and support is critical. That's why the HCMA has created an online support group system to help you and your loved ones live better with HCM. Join us. The HCMA is seeking volunteers on a number of different projects, including our online support group system, our peer-to-peer, big-hearted friend system, and our legislative subcommittee. Please visit 4HCM.org to learn more today.